Welcome to the Second Students North podcast. My name is Luis. We're in a series called Extraordinary. In this series, we talk about how God takes ordinary people and he uses them to do extraordinary things. We pray and hope that God speaks to you directly through this message. We hope you enjoy week one. Okay, so like I said, the series is called Extraordinary. We're going to talk through different characters in the Bible who were just ordinary people, but God used to do extraordinary things. And so when I thought about how to start off this series, the thing that got to my brain was, I don't even know if we understand that we are ordinary people. So that's what I need you to understand as we kick off this whole thing is you are ordinary. Uh, and I don't, <laughs> despite what your mom says, if she says that you are extraordinary and the most special in the world, you are. But at the end of the day, you're ordinary. I'm ordinary. We are all just ordinary people. No matter how many participation ribbons you have in your room, secret, everybody gets one of those, you're just ordinary. But there's good news on the other side of that that we're gonna get to later. But we don't wanna be ordinary. We know that we don't wanna be ordinary. And we spend a lot of time convincing ourselves that we aren't. You even, maybe you're, maybe you're kind of prone to bragging on yourself and so you brag on yourself to try to convince other people that you're not ordinary. Or maybe you're quiet about it, and so you just are kind of secretly hoping somebody else will brag on you to make you feel like you're not ordinary, make you feel like you are something extraordinary. But a lot of us, that happens for us at night. Like, you sit down and lay in bed, and you think about all the things that went wrong with your day, all the things that could go better tomorrow. And you're doing that because you're trying to convince yourself that you can be extraordinary, that you can have extraordinary grades, that you can perform extraordinarily on whatever activity you do, because we don't want to be ordinary. We're in this fight against being ordinary. Nobody like dreams of being the exact middle person in your class rank, and nobody dreams of being the fourth chair in whatever instrument you play. Nobody dreams of being the second string quarterback. Like it's not everybody's deepest, darkest desire, darkest, that was not correct, deepest desires. <laughs> is to be just average. We don't want to be average. We want to be extraordinary. But sorry to burst your bubble, you are. You are just ordinary. But the good news is that Christ can make you extraordinary and he wants to make you extraordinary. But apart from him, you're just average. Apart from him, you don't have a whole lot to offer. But his power through you, what we're going to learn tonight and through this series, his power through you makes you extraordinary. His power through you makes you able to do things that you were never able to do before, but you won't be able to do them apart from his strength, but he wants you to be a part of that. He wants to do extraordinary things through you. Um, I told high school Bible study this a couple weeks ago when I taught, but for two summers, summer of 2016 and 2017, I worked at a rodeo camp. Um, I don't know how to rodeo I do a little bit now, but not really. Um, but I was a counselor for these kids who wanted to learn how to rodeo. And my boss, his name was Rope, like literally a rope, that was his name. His brother's name were Ty and Cash. So their names were Rope It, Tie It, and Get the Cash. So I know, you got that. Uh, his name is Rope, and he was a world champion steer wrestler. So he was in charge of this camp, and I worked at it. But he loved the Lord, it was a Christian camp. And what I didn't expect to happen to me was I fell in love with horses, uh, and I want my kids to do rodeo one day because there's just something cool about the relationship between a human and a horse, and Rope taught us about this. I laugh when I say his name, but he taught us this relationship between a human and a horse, uh, and it's like your relationship with God because the human 
can do a whole lot more with the power of the horse behind it, the strength and the power and the height and whatever else a horse has. A human can do a lot more with it than without it. And Rope would use this to illustrate our relationship with God, how much we need his power behind us and how much more we can do with God than without God. So to help illustrate this, I got two videos of some rodeo things. So there's one, it's called steer saddling. I had never heard of it until Kale told me about it. But apparently they release like, they release a steer, you're gonna see a video, and then they release like four people with it. And their job is to try to put a saddle on a steer and then ride it, but it doesn't ever really go that well um, because it's just four people versus a steer, okay? And then the next video we're gonna watch is something different. But right now we're just gonna watch the steer saddling and just notice how horribly it goes. Okay, so really unsuccessful um, attempt at saddling this steer. There was four people, it was four on one. But then something you guys have probably heard of more is called steer wrestling, which is actually at the rodeo. Um, and it's like a person is on a horse and then they wrestle a steer to the ground, whoever does it the fastest wins. And these guys do it, like just notice what happens. Now it's only one guy, not four. One guy, but he has a horse and he, how quickly he's able to wrestle this steer to the ground just because he has like the power of the horse with him now, okay? 3.73 seconds. So think about the other guys that were steer saddling, what they could do in 3.73 seconds, not that. Like they just got trampled in 3.73 seconds. Or if I think about what I could do to one of those steer by myself in 3.73 seconds, I think I, you would be at my funeral three seconds later. Uh, that would be all that happened. So it's just crazy to me what the difference is, what one guy can do when he gets like the height from the horse, but also the speed and the power behind him. He can do so much more with the horse than four guys could do without one. And the whole point of that is just to keep illustrating this point that with God, we can do extraordinary things that we would never be able to do before, but by yourself, you would not be capable of them. And God wants to do that with you. So over this series, we're going to be talking about four different characters in the Bible who are just ordinary people, but God used to do really extraordinary things. Uh, and the first one we're talking about tonight is King David. You may know some things about him, um, but the way he started his life was pretty ordinary. He was the youngest of eight people. Is anybody in here the youngest of eight people? That'd be pretty cool. I don't know if I believe you. Okay, well, the youngest of eight people, you probably just feel pretty small about yourself. Um, and if that's you, you're not small, you're tough, but... The, he, David is the youngest of eight people, okay? But then he's anointed to be king when he's a teenager. We don't really know what age, but he's a teenager, something like y'all's age. And this guy named Samuel is like, you're gonna be king one day. So imagine somebody told you that you were gonna be king or queen, okay? So from a really young age, King David's already extraordinary. And then he does this thing where he kills a giant named Goliath with just a stone and a slingshot, and that's pretty extraordinary. And then when he's age 30, he finally becomes king, and that's pretty extraordinary. Like, just being a king is extraordinary. So David is doing some pretty extraordinary things with God and for God already up until this point in his life. But the story we're going to jump in at, he's probably like 40 to 45. He's been king for some time. But he's been doing extraordinary things with God and for God for a long time up until this point. And then something happens when he's like, like I said, 40 to 45 years old. Okay, we're going to read. I'm going to jump around in the chapter so we don't read the whole thing. So just follow along with me. Uh, on the screen. This is Second uh, Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. So it says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David, King David, sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. So notice at the beginning it said, this is the time when kings go off to war. 
But David stayed. He stayed behind. So he's not really setting himself up really well right now. He's already doing what he's not supposed to be doing. Verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed. He walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. I don't know why she was bathing on the roof, but probably a cultural thing that I don't get. Uh, The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone out to find her. The man said, her name is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So then David sent messengers to go get her. So David literally just find out. He's well aware she's married. This guy just said she is married. And David's like, go get her for me. Okay. So then she came to him, and he slept with her. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word back home, or sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So that's what happens David, again, has been this extraordinary guy doing extraordinary things for God's kingdom, and then he makes this horrible choice, gets this other guy's wife pregnant, okay? And then what happens next is he realizes what he did, and he's like, okay, well, let me just get her husband away from war. So he brings him back, and then he's like, well, maybe if he goes home, then she'll think, oh, or he'll think, oh, this baby's like my husband's. So she tries to get the husband to come back home to trick him, but the husband's like, I'm not going to go sleep in my comfy bed whenever all my friends are out at war. So the husband's being like a great guy. And David's like, you're ruining my plan. So that's what happens. And then David's like, well, I guess I have to do something else because I can't trick you. So verse 14, it says, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. So with the husband, he sends this letter, but the husband probably didn't read it. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in the front where the fighting is the fiercest. Then withdraw from him, so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. So they're out at war, and David says, put Uriah in the front, and then pull everybody else back from him. So really, ultimately, Bathsheba's husband dies in battle, in war, but how did he really die? murder. Did somebody say murder over there? Yes. He really died by murder because David said David was the one that intentionally had him killed. So Bathsheba's husband is killed. Verse 26, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, so this is Bathsheba, she mourned for him. After the time of the mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And I'm like, no duh. (laughs) Um, so David messed up big time. He was a king. He was a man after God's own heart. He's doing extraordinary things for God. And then he sleeps with some other lady, gets her pregnant, and then has her husband killed. So David's doing some pretty big bad stuff. That's a huge deal. So instead of doing extraordinary things with God, now he's just choosing extraordinary sin. And I don't know what you think, or really I don't care what you think you have done. Maybe you're in this room and you think you've done some pretty bad stuff. Um, maybe it matches up with David, but it probably doesn't. What you need to know in here is maybe you think you've messed up really bad, or maybe you think you've messed up a little. If David, what we're about to find out, if David can walk back into a relationship with the Lord after all this he's done, then so can you, and so can I. If he can be restored, then nothing that we can do can be worse to separate us from God, because David did some pretty big bad stuff. So let's keep reading and we're going to see what happens to David. Because all that's happened so far is he has this lady who's now his wife, and they have a baby, um, but it's like a murder baby. Second Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, 
give us a little bit of context, and this guy named Nathan, he's a prophet, God sends him to go talk to David, and he's like, David, let me tell you a story. And he says, David, once upon a time, there was a rich man and there was a poor man. The rich man has all of this livestock, and the poor man just has one, just has one little sheep. So in this story, the rich man is trying to feed a guest, and so he goes and kills the poor man's one sheep instead of killing any of his own. So Nathan tells this story to David, and then this is how David responds. Chapter 12, verse 5. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, what we're probably all thinking, You are that man. You are the man who took no pity, who took from this one person the only thing they had when you had everything. You are that man. Then skip down to verse 13. David responds and said to Nathan, he realizes what, he'd done, what he's done. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. So then Nathan replies, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. We can't blow through those two verses so fast. Like, notice what happened. David has done all of this like worthy of so much punishment, then he realizes what he did because the Lord came after him through a prophet. He realizes what he did. And then he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And the very next thing the Lord tells him through a prophet is, the Lord has taken away your sin. Like, it makes me wonder, is that how easy it is to be forgiven? That no matter what I've done, no matter how badly I've messed up, if all I have to say is I have sinned against the Lord and I'm forgiven, like, can it truly be that easy? So then David, his son, like God said, he said, your son's going to die because of your sin. So then seven days later, his son dies. So that's just a consequence for his sin. But he's already experienced this extraordinary forgiveness that he didn't deserve in the first place. So then after his son dies, verse 20, it says, hmm, my voice. It says, then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. So after all of that, after his huge sin with Bathsheba, and then killing her husband, and then his own son dies, the very first thing he does is goes to worship. He goes straight into the house of the Lord, and he worships. And I don't know about you, but it would have taken me a long time to feel like I could worship again. One, because I didn't feel like I deserved it because of all of my sin, but also because I would be mourning. I would be sad that somebody I love just died. It would take me a long time to feel like I could worship again. And maybe you feel that way in here. Maybe you don't know, like, why you came in here because you're like, I don't, like, fit in this place. I don't fit in with these church people because I've done some bad things that I'm not proud of. Or maybe you've come here for a long time and you've recently done some things you're not proud of and you don't feel worthy to worship. Maybe when we prayed earlier, you were like, I have no right to talk to God. I've done some bad stuff. I don't have any right to talk to him. He probably doesn't care to hear from me. Like, maybe you feel that way. Maybe you feel like you don't have any right to worship. But what's the first thing that David did after all of that? Is he worshiped. And this is David stepping back into the extraordinary life that God had called him to. So if you don't know something about David, he, wrote, he writes half the Psalms. So the book of Psalms has 150 chapters. He's written 73 of them. One of the psalms he writes is right after, like probably when he's in the temple worshiping, but right after all of this stuff has happened, and it's Psalm 51. We're going to read most of it together, and I want you to notice 
what David's confession looks like. He's realized all of this he's done. And then this is what his conversation with the Lord looks like. And ask yourself, is this what my conversation with the Lord looks like after I sin? Is this how I talk to God after I sin? Um, so read along with me. Chapter 50, Psalm chapter 51. We're going to read verses 1 through 12. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely, I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts and teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquity. This one's so good. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. So for 12 verses, David just confesses. He confesses, he asks to be cleansed, he asks to be restored. He's like, God, I need you to wash me clean. I need to start over. I have chosen some really bad things. I need to start over. But the coolest thing is verse 13, what he immediately says right after that. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. And this is just the coolest, you guys, because after all of that sin, all of that mess he chose, he confesses, he chooses to confess, he chooses to go back to worship, and then he fully expects to start doing big stuff for God again. He says, then, let's leave that verse up there, yeah, leave it up there, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. So David says, then I will, I will jump right back into telling people about you, God. I will jump right back into sharing about who you are to sinners because I'm one of them and I will teach them about who you are. There's no moping around, <laughs> there's no, I don't deserve to do this, I've messed up so much, I don't deserve to go back to God. There's none of that. It's like, okay, I'm washed clean, and then I will jump right back into doing extraordinary things with God. So ask yourself, is that how I am? Or am I choosing to kind of mope around in my sin and think that I'm not worthy, that I'm not worthy to God, that he should have nothing to do with me? Are you just moping around, or have you chosen to ask for forgiveness, and then walk back again in new life with him. Because then after this, like I said, David's written 73 of the 150 Psalms, but half of those 73 he wrote after this mess up with Bathsheba. So like, he messed up and then stepped right back into like doing ministry, to writing praise, writing songs, writing psalms of praise to the Lord. He jumps right back into it, because half of what he wrote in the book of Psalms is after this mess up. He didn't let it derail the rest of his life. He jumped right back in. And then, um, and then he has a son, another son, named King Solomon, who's the guy that we've talked about, right, in Bible study the past four weeks, who's the wisest guy to ever live. And so both of those things seem pretty extraordinary to me. Writing half of the book of Psalms and then having a son who's the wisest guy to ever exist, that all sounds pretty extraordinary to me. So David's sin didn't keep him from being extraordinary again with God, for God doing extraordinary things through him. He jumped right back into it, and so that's possible for us too. But sometimes we think, 
I could never just walk back up to God, I'm too dirty. He would never want me again, what if I blow it again, I might as well just stay here instead of trying again and then failing. I've heard that from some of you guys, so I know you think it. Why would I try again with God if I'm probably gonna mess up again, I might as well just stay here. Be easier that way and I won't let him down. But here's the deal with that, when you think that that's the case, when you think that you can't do extraordinary things for him anymore, you're really doubting his power, he's the one with the power. He's the one that's gonna overcome you. And so when you think that you can't step back into it anymore, you're really doubting his power to overcome you. And he's much more powerful than you. Maybe you know that he's willing to forgive you, um, but you're not ready to forgive yourself yet. And I would tell you the same thing. It doesn't matter what you think. God's power wants to overcome you and he wants to move through you, no matter what you think about yourself, honestly. And then the last one, maybe you know he's willing to forgive you, but you don't think you could be used again. The same thing is true. His power is so mighty and so strong that he wants to use you for extraordinary things. In the New Testament, there's a guy named Paul. Uh, You've probably heard of him before. And he used to do extraordinarily bad things. And then Jesus changed his life. And then he started doing extraordinarily mighty things for God. But he realizes that he's not the one with the power. And he writes the two verses that we read at the beginning that Hannah read. I'm going to read them again. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 through 10. But he said to me, this is God talking to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, which means my grace is enough for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in my weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul gets it. Paul did some crazy stuff. He wrote like most of the New Testament. And he gets it. He says, I don't have any power. I need Christ's power to rest on me because his grace is sufficient for me. His power is made perfect in my weakness. And that's true for you guys. His power is made perfect in your weakness. And when you are weak, really it means you're strong because that's so much more that God can move through you than when you could just move through yourself. So what you need to know is that you are, extra, you, sorry, you are ordinary, but God wants to make you extraordinary and do extraordinary things through you. But our job is when we mess up to repent and then turn back around immediately and be ready to be used again, not to dwell in it, not to mope around in it, but immediately be ready to do extraordinary things with God and for God again.